I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another radically optimistic episode of the XPRIZE Future Positive Podcast. I'm Shlomi, Chief Advancement Officer at XPRIZE, and thank you for joining us. Under-resourced communities in the U.S. face systemic barriers to learning, to mobility, and to progress. And the core problems impeding effective workforce development, including a widening skills gap, deteriorating job quality, and a lack of collaboration between players in the labor market, all make this harder and more challenging to solve. The $5 million XPRIZE Rapid Reskilling Competition strives to secure a future in which all workers can rapidly attain new and more relevant skills to their current workplace and their next one. Novel solutions developed in the XPRIZE Rapid Reskilling will uplift labor market in the U.S. and close the widening skills gap. With an unprecedented digital disruption and adoption caused by COVID-19, come new opportunities to radically change the lives of millions of Americans. To discuss these timely and weighty subjects are two thought leaders in this field who are both working at the coalface of the changing future of work. My first guest is Desmond Dickerson. He is a manager and innovation consultant for the Cognizant Center for the Future of Work, where he's a passionate advocate and leader for the African-American and Latino Business Resource Group. Under his guidance, the group has helped to mentor future leaders and leverage relationships with other affinity groups to promote innovation through diversity. My second guest is XPRIZE Connect Advisory Board member Dwayne Matthews, a self-proclaimed innovation evangelist and future of education strategist. Dwayne helps school boards, educators, and parents understand the new and evolving themes around the future of education, the future of work, and how to prepare children to thrive in a digitally evolving world. Welcome, Desmond and Dwayne. Thank you. Thank you. Glad to be here. So, guys, I, I wanted to start off with a question for both of you, and it's really to just level set and get a definition from the two of you of what the future of work actually means. How would you describe it? Defining the future of work. Uh, I think it's always interesting whenever folks ask me for a definition of that because inherently it's undefined, uh, and that's kind of the beauty of it. We haven't figured it out yet, and we never will because it's always going to be just ahead of where we are, always in the future. Uh, but overall, it involves a mix of new technologies, new workers, and new ways of working. And you know, we can't predict exactly what the future of work is. So really, it's just important that we prepare for what those possible futures 
of work could be. Uh, so I think that's where our energy needs to be is, is preparing ourselves for the different scenarios that could play out. I like that. That's yeah. The, the multiple possible futures and our, our effort to shape those I think is absolutely important. Dwayne. So, well, well, thank you very much for having me. Um, in terms of the future of work, one of the things that I think is, is really sort of prevalent finding a, a definite de- definition. I agree with Desmond. It's hard because the target's always moving out just a little bit uh, ahead of you. But I think what's really prevalent to me is is the the removal of gates. And so somewhere along the line, we we had a printed book, and we saw that printed book was held behind the gate. The books were were held. You know, there was maybe a, a rabbi or a, a a priest or or someone that sort of held the books, and and most of the population was not able to read. And so fast forward a couple hundred years, and and now you know a lot more of us read, and that really opened up opportunities. I think what we're seeing is maybe five or six converging technologies that are actually going to open those gates for more and more people and provide more and more opportunities for for people to have impact and you know we're sort of the, in the teenage stage of that if you think of the internet as 1994 and if you think of the you know what a teenager is like there's a lot of angst there's a lot of you know aggression there's a lot of um you know thinking about the hypocrisy of adulthood we start to see that energy around the world and i think we're we're just transitioning into a more mature version of having all of this digital access you know i i can think just right off the bat if you have a smartphone in your pocket there there're probably a couple billion transistors sitting on a single chip and you know that is profoundly more powerful than all of the united states nasa science group probably about 50 years ago so that's actually really profound and i think to me the future of work is really around the removal of of gatekeepers in a systematic way happening probably a lot faster than most of us are comfortable with. I love that. And I think, you know, to put it in a historical context, we, we often forget that the democratization of literacy is a relatively new phenomenon in human history. And really the levels of the literacy rates that we now see a hundred years ago, were just not there, right? You had in the United States, at least you had literacy campaigns in the 19th century that were often led by churches and so, you, you know, and, and it was only in the post-World War II era that you started seeing those types of literacy campaigns in the rest of the world outside of, of, the, of the West. So I think you're, you're bringing up a, a very important point. And I wanted to keep digging into that because, you know, your, your focus is, is very much on education and trying to understand how we start preparing for the future of work. And as we reimagine the future of work, its shapes and its forms. How do we reimagine where it begins? How do we reimagine the the education system and schooling? And and I know you've written quite a bit about that, so I wanted to hear your thoughts on on that earlier stage of things. What I, I think is interesting is when we think about the premise of formal education, and I've had the privilege to speak to to many teachers and educators, and somewhere along the, the road, we've sort of lost what the core of it is. We, we've moved to it being only about the learner and not necessarily about the learner's position in society. And you know that's really, really important. So 
at the beginning of formal education, probably about 150 years ago, it really was around getting people into the world of work. How do we fit them into the world of work? Are you going to be a manager? Are you working on the factory floor? And we had a factory-like model for work. And you know, we see that in our office buildings. We see that in terms of our time, the way that kids, there's a bell, there's a lunch. Um, you know, you check in, check out. It's very specific. But as that started to transform, we, we typically haven't done a lot to deal with that. I'll, I'll give a good example. Most schools, you know, pre-2020, there was a bell in the morning, you know, maybe 30 or 40 kids marched into a room. There was a sage on the stage. You know, you practice lining up. And these are the hallmarks of, of a good school, if you will. And now 2020 has sort of rapidly taken us through this, this uh, beginning point of a digital transformation. We see that the schooling is really having a difficult time dealing with the flexibility or the personalization that comes along with online. So you, you see a lot of schools globally around the world and, and not just in the United States. I mean, here in Canada, I've had conversations with, with folks in Europe, folks in New Zealand, you know, still trying to create this sage on the stage inside of a digital two-dimensional box. And I said to a couple of leaders, I go, think of your most favorite show on Netflix. And could you look at that show for six hours a day, 192 days in a row, if I gave you popcorn and a bottle of wine? And most re recognize they couldn't, but that's what we're attempting to do. So to me, I think the very first thing that we have to do is we have to start realizing the theme of work. So we're looking at the rapid digital transformation of work as fourth industrial revolution technologies are pressing on the world of work. So we have to look at school in that context. We have to look at making things a bit more rich. We have, you know, we still have teachers saying, hey, I think the kids are cheating on the test. I'm like, but most adults are always gonna have access to that phone. They're always gonna have access to Google and it's only going to get faster. I go, so we really have to start thinking about the mix. And the last point that I'd like to make is, you know, a lot of educators are thinking, okay, well, we're moving online and we're using technology. And my response is, no, we've always used technology. School has actually always been about technology. It's always been about technology adoption. The printed book is technology, pencils are technology, the blackboard is technology, and how do we use those to impact the world of work? Now, we're still going with that theme and the technology is not leading. It's human-led, technology augmented, but purpose-driven. And so really, how do we now start looking at that premise and using that to, to re-image school itself? And, and the very last point is, you know, the factory is about standardization and the future is about personalization. How do we personalize at scale? All great points. And, and Desmond, I wanted to turn to you because you actually, with, with Cognizant, you're also working at creating that future technology, right? Cognizant is at the forefront of changing the way that AI works. So I wanted to hear your thoughts on this as well. I love, I love where you left off on that, Dwayne, in terms of, you know, the past was about, you know, warehouses, manufacturing, and that's kind of like mass produce. And then going forward, it's, it's all about that, that personalization, because that's, that's exactly where it is. So I think a lot about 
how can school be reimagined to you know meet similar standards and have a shared experience throughout you know a district or throughout a country, but also individualized in such a way that each student is able to learn in their own way and advance in their own way and kind of take their own path. Uh, and I think even in doing that, it would encourage the type of thinking that we want in the marketplace, the type of thinking that we want on the job, that everyone isn't going to do the same thing. Everyone isn't going to have the same skill set. You know, we want to stoke creativity. And that comes from, you know, individualized thinking and, and folks doing their own thing. Uh, so I think kind of just starting there, even if it's not necessarily focused on technology, but just a mindset uh, that allows each student to, to thrive and move forward in the way that makes sense for them. Uh, I, I would say that's, that's really where it starts. One of my concerns, though, is that we're thinking about the future of work, and it feels often like, at least in, in the U.S., that our education system is barely producing folks for the present of work. And that's, you know, you know new jobs uh, as they emerge, they're, you know, hard to fill just because our school system, you know, isn't in line with that. So when it goes from, you know, K through 12, you know, public uh, school that, you know, everyone is, is provided and required, and then from there into, you know, post-secondary school, and just thinking about that transition as well, I feel like it, it really requires an entire reimagining of the whole process, understanding that, you know, those first, you know, 10, 12 years, that may be the foundation, but then beyond that, there has to be an ongoing new way of learning. It can't just be that education is important for children. It's important for all of us because the working environment that I now experience at this point in my career is different than even when I started, you know, going from my early 20s to my 30s. And it's important for someone like me to continue to grow and learn just as it would be for a 15-year-old to continue to learn and grow and develop so that they can be a functioning member and contributing member of society. Yeah. And, and I want to unpack a few of those points because those are, those are critical, right? Very often when you listen to these conversations around the future of work, Desmond, to your precise point, they effectively are focused and the future of learning as well. They're effectively focused on how either the education system is not producing people to fill the, the skills gap as, as it's described by employers, right? Employers, you know, Bill, I remember Bill Gates, for, for over 30 years now has been saying that we don't have enough college graduates coming out with computer engineering degrees or computer science degrees, which makes a ton of sense if you own a, a software company that you want more engineers. It, it, helps your labor, it helps your labor economics if you have a greater supply of workers. Um, but there's that piece of addressing that issue and seeing education as a pipeline into the workforce system, but also tending to focus on the needs of essentially an elite group of learners because in the United States today, only about a third of people over the age of 25 have a post-secondary degree. And yet very often when we have these conversations about the future of work, they are about that segment of the population and not the segment of the population that has already historically been left behind. And, and I want to later get into kind of how do we solve for that? How do we make sure that we are creating more opportunities? I wanted to dig a little bit more into that aspect of learning and workforce development of how it is, um, you know, it has the promise of closing inequities, but historically has not. And to get your, your guys's thoughts on, on that aspect of how do we actually 
open up those gates so that they truly enable entry to a lot more people than have ever been able to walk through those gates before. I spoke with Dwayne previously about a concept that I think could be adopted here that would that would be fantastic in closing that gap. Uh, Dwayne, do you recall when we were talking before, you were mentioning how funds get allocated in different communities for different schools in, in Canada. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Because I think we pretty much do the opposite here and, and we, we need to adopt that uh, process. Sure. So we, we, we have a in Toronto, and I, I don't know how much more of Canada does this, but we have a, a system called, it's called model schools. And model schools are essentially our inner city schools that have the lowest achievement on standardized testing. And what's done here is a massive amount of money is driven into those schools, more so than the average schools. So the most amount of teacher training, the most amount of uh, technology is sent into those schools. There's a, there's a significant amount of effort. And the premise behind that, and you know, this is not an official Canadian policy, but the premise behind that is we really have to buy our civilization, if you will, right? So we, we need to make sure that everybody has an opportunity to contribute, not for that person, but for us. So for us to be able to walk safely down the street, I need that person to be taken care of. Um, so I'm going to have to take care of them. And if we as a country are going to compete on the global scale against other regions, then we need more minds at the table. So it really is taking a very different look and thinking, I'm not giving somebody a free anything. I'm actually not giving back to the community. I'm making the community overall stronger because we need those people to be strong. We need more minds at the table. And so what they've done is sent a lot more money through that model school program. By no means is it perfect, but there's a there's a lot of effort there and it, it, it creates a model specifically for that. The, the other thing that I, I think of is very often when we think about innovation, one of our biases as sitting in you know, developed countries is we, we typically take our innovative ideas and we go into developing countries and we say, hey, we, we have some great ideas for you and here's how we're going to come and help. What we've not done a really good job at is going to those countries and saying, hey, you have a problem that you're actually solving that we've been ignoring and we actually need some innovations from you. So I'm I'm really curious as to, you know, a country like Rwanda, I'm really curious to find out how have they dealt with innovation? How come so many classes in Rwanda? They're, I've seen pictures of full classes in Rwanda where all the kids have access to digital devices. And here in Toronto, we still have, you know, a box moving around that says, um, here's what you're going to get. And one class is going to get it today. And, and the next class is going to get it tomorrow. You know, so how have they managed to do that? So I think it really is looking at first a different premise of society, a different premise of of helping society and, and really appealing to it in a different way. So, you know, if, if you're appealing to people that are, you know, you know, hardcore capitalists, you can say, you know what, we need more people to have more money to buy more stuff. So it just based on that, if we could get these people up to here, 
which is very similar to what they've done in China, right? Like they've, they've said, you know, we, we have a billion people. If we could get a couple hundred million of them with more money, guess what? We, we will be a lot more self-sustained. And so to really look at it that way and, and then to look and say, okay, if we're going to compete, then we, we essentially need to have more minds at the table. So now when we put that money, we're looking at the money not as a spend, but as a real investment that we can measure over time based on on work. And I, I think the opportunity, and this is the last point that I'll make on this, the opportunity, as Desmond mentioned with the skills gap, is that you can now actually draw a direct line. There are 3.5 million jobs that are vacant in cybersecurity. The United States just had probably the largest cybersecurity breach that's impacted us. I go, you can actually draw a line and say, we can create a pipeline of cybersecurity students and we can measure that over time in terms of how many jobs we fill so we know that we're creating an impact. There's so many opportunities here that were not here five years ago that, that I'm radically optimistic. To continue on this concept, I remember you know, reading somewhere before about you know genius. Genius is pretty evenly distributed geographically, but opportunity isn't. So you know that's where we have to go and figure out. All right, there's a skills gap. Is it a skills gap or is it an opportunity gap? You know, and understanding better ways that we can reach different pockets of genius and brilliance and creativity, and making sure that they get the opportunities to fully develop uh, those concepts, those ideas. I, I love what's happening right now with the idea around the um, diffusion of Silicon Valley and people talking about oh. You know, is is Miami the next Silicon Valley? Is the, the the triangle research triangle in North Carolina? Is it Atlanta? Is it Toronto? And and with that energy and that thought process, you know, VC money, training, investment, it's going to go into these other communities. The folks that are in Silicon Valley are fine. They're going to continue to thrive and be successful um, because of the investment that's been made there. But now with the um, you know remote, remote work revolution, now these other places are getting more opportunity and some of the thought leaders, some of the investors, some of the business leaders that were all concentrated in Silicon Valley as they diffuse out across this country and potentially across the globe, you know, now that energy, now those opportunities are going with them. Uh, so that is potentially a very exciting turn of events. That's something I'm radically optimistic about is the impact of remote work and how it can uh, spread opportunity uh, across all sectors, across all industries. So Desmond, you yourself are, are a veteran of remote work. And so can you dig into how it creates this opportunity to really distribute opportunity uh, more evenly across the globe and, and across even North America? Remote work is a game changer. Going from less than 5% of folks working remotely to, you know, estimates have said up to 35% of people doing it, uh, at least in the U.S. this year. And even if we settle somewhere in the middle, maybe it's around 20%, that's four times as many as we had before. The way that technology is moving now, it's it's an industry essentially of, of kingmakers. There's fiefdoms, uh, digital fiefdoms that in some ways are more powerful than, than certain countries. You know, the the power and the reach that a Facebook has is greater than probably the majority of countries uh, in the world. Um, but 
when you have folks that are working there that are all you know from one demographic that's gonna frame the way they view the world frame the way they put products out into the world but now if we have leaders that are there that you know maybe they're paraplegic or they're you know blind and they're thinking of how the products that are produced there that impact billions of people all over the world need to be reimagined to help marginalized communities uh, so that is you know again just a, a very exciting element of the remote work revolution to me. And um, it, it takes active effort and thought and intention to make sure that these marginalized communities um, are a significant part of this change and into the future of work. Uh, but the potential is absolutely there. Desmond, I, I agree with you 120%. Just from a few examples over the last few months, you know, there are executives at Facebook that I know of that are living in Barbados. And as they look around, they start realizing, wow, there's there's a lot of opportunity here. This is like walking into a blank slate and people are eager for opportunities. And I'm sure, you know, you start realizing the economics of the Caribbean being 10 million people and just your stock price as a Facebook executive, that creates huge opportunities for innovation to go back and forth one of the, the projects that we did at the Tomorrow Learning Lab was we had a number of homeschooled children connect with public school children, connect with private school children, three different teachers across virtual space to do one project on space and flight. And just listening to the ideas as they move back and forth as these kids are in this space is really, really interesting in terms of the possibilities and just seeing one another, just being able to see, oh, wow, like your school is like this. Do you know that they had that? Or these folks do this, um, but we all do this together, right? Um, I, I think that's really, really fascinating in terms of the opportunity for remote learning and remote work. And it, it, it starts to change the dynamic between geography. I mean, you know, we're all talking from different parts of the country and I, I'm in a, a completely other country and there are commonalities and there are things that we're learning from each other that's really exciting. So I think the promise of this was before, but when you look at it, you realize that the networking was was still very local. There were very few nodes that would reach out. XPRIZE is, is pretty unique in that sense in, in terms of, you know, there's a connection to India, there's a connection to all these different places. But when you look at it, you realize that, you know, previously most people sort of dealt with this. You know, I'm not really engaging with that many people from New Zealand until most recently. And so you start realizing that happens a bit more. So I, I agree with you. I think remote, we're looking at the beginning. And uh, I know in schools, there was a lot of pushback and resistance. And, you know, I, I say to a lot of teachers, I go, what you're experiencing is not online learning or remote learning. It's emergency learning using remote tools. And once you sit down and think about what the opportunities are, in the next two or three years, you'll find that there's a massive leap and that massive leap is going to pay dividends. So let's let's get into that because you guys both opened with, you know, we have to, to build this future of work and we have to build this future of education, you know, and you guys are advising organizations on how to do that. What are the steps that we need to take as as a society to start building the right type of schooling and the right type of workforce development system and the right type of workplace so that all of this promise and all of this opportunity is actually manifested. 
because you know every every epoch has its utopians it has its optimists and it has its pessimists right and we are going through a revolution and revolutions by their very nature have the promise to create a much better world and they also have the potential to create greater inequality um, and we tend to see this, right? When you look at, you know, we're now going through the fourth industrial revolution, you look at the, the first industrial revolution, the second and the third, what you'll usually see is a, a period with increased inequality at first because kind of the opposite of, of the model schools program, capital tends to flow and resources tend to flow towards those that are already further ahead, right? covid was expected to harm the entire economy equally. And yet the tools, at least in the United States, that the federal government deployed and the Federal Reserve deployed ended up benefiting certain segments of society. You know, we're talking about uh, executives at Facebook being able to go work in Barbados, Right. Having that privilege and that that ability to go do that and play the arbitrage of their salary versus the cost of living that most people are in reverse arbitrage. Most people, their cost of living has gone up and their their income has gone down. And yet you have a segment of society that has become absurdly wealthy. The the two wealthiest men in the world, because they are both men, have uh, grown their wealth by several multiples during this crisis while globally uh, tens of millions of people are still out of work. As a, a person who works at a radically optimistic organization, who myself happens to be a, uh, a very optimistic person and always believes that we're going to solve this and we're going to make it better, so we're going to make this better no matter what, um, I'm still interested in, so how do we do that? How do you guys envision the work that we need to do over these next few years, especially as we, as we transition from Dwayne, what you called it, emergency learning using remote tools to actually being in, you know, in the world that we're in past this immediate crisis that we're currently facing. Right. Maybe I'll, I'll, I'll take a quick stab. I'll, I'll try not to be too long, Desmond, and, and you can jump in as we and, and we can go back and forth on this. I remember that there are Carnegie libraries all over the world. And I realized that, you know, but Carnegie was one of the first people to actually get together and create a, a private public partnership to create a library system that is sort of the basis of the library systems that we have globally today. Um, you know, typically, we, you know, there are places in the world, obviously, you know, libraries in Alexandria and that sort of stuff that were like one library, but not a system. Right. And so, you know, the hospital system were, were, were the Rockefellers at the beginning. And so, you know, I, I think that there is a responsibility and not an altruistic responsibility. I think there's a responsibility to grow the economy for large organizations to start playing a role in that, to start playing a role in devices, right? Like somebody said, you know, Dwayne, we, we can't afford devices. I said, well, I go, we have 3 billion people on the planet using devices, right? Whether it be a phone, an iPad, a, a computer. And we put out 2 billion devices in 2019. I go, and we'll probably put out the same thing in 2020. I go, so we're already at a billion surplus. Where did that billion surplus go? 
right? Um, so we, we don't have a, a problem of technology and stuff. What we have is a, a problem in terms of distribution. And so if we look at that distribution as a handout, well, it's going to be a problem. But if we look at the distribution as an investment into the economy itself, right? Because you're going to have to have, um, you know, if, 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 if greed is the driver, then, you know, I would guess that Elon's going to want more people to buy those threes, right? I go in, so to get more people to buy the threes, you're going to have to have more people that are capable to do that, right? And so you you can do that. Um, we, we have an organization here. I think it's down the state. They're called CompuGen. And, you know, for a while, most of the computers that we have in the Toronto District School Board, which is a, the largest school board in Canada, all came from CompuGen with repurposed computers that came out of businesses that went in. CompuGen charged a small amount of money for it, and now they're a multi-million dollar company just doing that. So, so to me, I think there are models that we can use that are actually using capitalism as the problem solver that will be able to unlock some of these areas. The, the other thing that I think that large companies are going to want to do is with the skills gap is they're going to want to start being like the NBA and recruiting these geniuses straight out of high school. If there's going to be a gap, if Facebook and Google are sucking up most of the people, if I were a bank in New York or if I were a large company, I would say, you know, I can't afford to lose my cybersecurity chiefs. So I'm going to have to go in and I'm going to have to get into the high school. I'm going to have to get in at the middle school level. And I'm going to have to assume that if genius is evenly distributed, that there's food left on the table in a lower income neighborhood, right? And I'm going to be able to get that at a discount for me and at a huge benefit to that person. And we can start the conversation there. So the reason why I, I put it that way is I put it in a sense of opportunity versus altruism because altruism runs out, right? Like I, I, I told somebody, I go, you can be the most altruistic person if you have $100 and you're, you're giving $100 to homeless people, at some point in the month, you'll stop. I go, but mutual benefit can grow the opportunity. So I think it really is about stakeholder capitalism and looking at that stakeholder capitalism to create value. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Just finding that alignment, that conscious capitalism, you know, in, in such a way that, you know, your business, your organization, you're making money, but you're also creating that positive impact and that positive change. I think, you know, honestly, programs like what's happening at XPRIZE uh, in terms of figuring out, like, how do we mobilize brilliant people, problem solvers uh, in their spare time or wherever, you know, to come together to think about these big problems that are facing, you know, entire countries, entire economies, uh, the entire globe. So I think just continuing to, to you know, bring disparate talents from different areas and combining those folks, similar to what you were saying, Dwayne, where you've got, you know, public school, private school, and then homeschool students, vastly different backgrounds and experiences, but they come together. They have a shared experience as young learners, um, but also their own perspectives on how they're going to solve a problem. And that's what we'll continue to need to solve these problems that look to be growing bigger and bigger that we're facing uh, globally. And it's, it's going to take that, you know, there's no shortage of problems. And, and what we have to do is continue to learn how do we work together or how do we combine different talents and different skill sets and different resources uh, through programs like what, what XPRIZE does. So I, w I want to turn to a few rapid fire questions that I think 
our listeners would would love to hear from you about because you know you, you guys you're you're big thinkers but you're also as as I said at the beginning you guys are really at the at the forefront of this right and and you're coming up I mean Dwayne you're you're doing stuff with your kids in terms of learning that's really like you know five years ago would have been like whoa this is the future so so I wanted to just dig into a few personal things with you guys first as we've been going through this you guys were working remotely but as you look at kind of how this has changed with entire organizations going remote what strategies of remote work have worked uh well for you just two or three things that you're like this is good that's good i recommend others do it i would say um Understanding what requires a call versus an email versus a video chat and just kind of, you know, organizing your day around that. Understanding when your team needs time to, you know, do deep, individualized, focused work that's uninterrupted with a bunch of, you know, emails or meetings or whatever throughout the day versus, you know, when the team needs to be together. So the concept of time blocking to me is super effective. So, you know, maybe... Monday and Tuesday, we're, we're doing a lot of the just like kind of deep focus work. We're working individually, getting things done. Wednesday, midweek, maybe there's a check-in. You know, you're seeing what teams are doing or you're brainstorming. You're coming together. You're sharing ideas and concepts and discussing what, what your challenges are. One thing that's like, it's like magic, honestly, for me. I'll get stuck writer's block or just kind of struggling to, you know, think through, you know, something strategically. I just get up and take a walk. And I think that's something that we don't think about that we miss in the workplace because people oftentimes think about, you know, driving to work, the commute. Oh, I'm, I'm appreciative I don't have the commute anymore or, you know, whatever other aspects are. But, you know, oftentimes people are just walking around the office or you're walking to, you know, meet a coworker or you, you grab coffee, whatever. So I found that even though being at home is quite comfortable, it's necessary to get out, stretch your legs, let your mind wander. And for me, inevitably, it always comes back to whatever that problem was. And I'm able to, you know, just come with a solution or just a, a more efficient and effective way of thinking through the problem that leads to breakthroughs. So that, to me, is essential to, to remote working. You know, so going from what he said around time blocking, I think that's really important. So I'll, I'll start from my own experience, but also from the experience of, of my son. So my son's doing online, he's 11. Um, you know, he's doing it online and sort of in a, in a very basic way with, with his school and Sage on the stage, you know, a bunch of kids in, sitting in front of the Zoom all day, which sometimes works well, sometimes doesn't. What we did when he was at Tomorrow Learning Lab with me, which we spent maybe about five or six months together um, working on that, was we literally would wake up, he would wake up later in the day. So I, I really respected his time as to when he was most productive. We would have mental sprints, which was really important. So we booked in mental sprints. So similar to the time blocking, but, you know, pay for the next hour and a half, you know, what what, what can you put out in this hour and a half? Um, also looking into what is his specific keen thing that he's really good at. So looking at different types of projects and different types of ways and really allowing him to flourish in that space. So, you know, in terms of work, there are lots of people doing things that may not be the best place um, for them. And, you know, trying to moving people around to find that best place and allowing them to deep dive because they have that time. 
And, you know, the other thing around time blocks is when do people work? Right. So so my son's 11 and, you know, we, we were spending all this time forcing him to bed at nine because, you know, he, he needs to have a good night's sleep. And we're realizing that, you know, if you wake up at 11, um, he'll produce amazing at 1130 at night, which is counterintuitive to me as a parent. But when I mapped it out, he was still getting the required hours. And so I, I really had to sit back and think about that. The other thing is allowing time for for relaxed social one of the things that that people were really excited about the beginning they're like the productivity is up and the productivity is up because they were not allowing for those natural gaps that walk to the coffee shop the walk to the bathroom it was just you know here's one zoom meeting another zoom meeting oh look we squeezed in 10 meetings in a space that might have taken three that consolidation is really important even when you're thinking the idea of having time to consolidate your thoughts is really important, making sure that you stay in the prefrontal cortex and you don't start to feel overwhelmed with the amount of information. So I, I think those things, when people talk about Zoom fatigue, you're typically, if you get into the details of it, um, it really is people that are going back-to-back meetings all day, which, you know, it's, it's taking people a while to realize, I only had three meetings in 2019, but now I have eight and people can always get a hold of me because my computer's always on and I can always see the the little team logo going and, and I think maybe I should get to that on Sunday night. So I think really allowing for for time for consolidation of thoughts and, and booking that in. And so even for for kids, time blocking, you know, how you articulate a project, making sure that you allow for people to really do a deep dive into their strength in so much as they can, because you'll get a lot more. And then the very last, you know, banking in that time for consolidation or making that space, if you will, to, to process um, everything that, that you're taking in and what you have to do. Yeah. And I, th- I think this goes back to, to Dwayne, you were talking at the beginning about how the future of work is a transition from standardization to personalization. And I think what you guys are bringing up is, is two things. One that we do have the opportunity to personalize more, but also that personalization often also means understanding your needs as as a learner, as a worker, what works for you. I, and, and I do think there's much more openness to that. I remember I, I spent my 20s uh, being, a, being the owner entirely of my own time and, uh, and realized, at, going back to my teens, that I am uh, – my brain is very alert – uh, at the most odd hours of of the twenty four hour cycle, I, I you know I'd, I I wrote my dissertation in the middle of the night, but from about noon to four p.m. my brain would turn to mush. I'd be worthless, and I told my employer after grad school this you know very kind of uh, staid organization. I was like, look, I'll, I'll I'll work twenty hours a day for you guys, no problem. But there's this middle chunk of the day where I'm just not going to be productive. It's just the way it is. It's like I'm, my brain is not – it's not at an optimal rate. And they looked at me like I was crazy. And then Daniel Pink came out with this book a couple of years ago saying like this is you know, this is a thing. And I think you guys are, are picking up on it. And I, I do recognize that there seems to be more of a sense that that is permissible. And this goes back to Dwayne, your notion of the gates 
coming down, right? The idea that there is more of an opportunity uh, for that to happen. And the, the, just to, to add on to that, the, the last piece is really to think about too, you know, we, we operate a lot of times we think we're, we're having these, you know, these brilliant thoughts, but we're operating inside of frameworks that have sort of been placed for us, right? Like, um, you know, I, I love that quote that says, um, function follows form. And what you're talking about is that. And, you know, to also recognize how difficult it is, like, you know, my wife and I, we really strained um, the first few months when my son is sleeping in till 10. And I had to listen to the conversations in my head about why that was. I had very specific ideas that were set to me from my grandfather about being on time and getting off early and, and getting to job at this time. And I'm thinking, if he's getting up at 10, he's not going to be able to get to his job on time right as I'm sitting in the middle of, yeah, no, he just turned on the computer when he wants and he can give me nine hours worth of work in about an hour if I balance that right. But if I don't balance that right, he's not as productive. And then he he has a, a much more negative perception of himself and his abilities um, because he, he's not maximized. Just like, you know, you, you were wise enough to say, this is my time when I'm going to give you the most work. So I think that's really, really important. Um, there were companies that were flirting with that in 2019. But I, I think, um, you know, really the companies that are going to win or organizations going to win or people going to win are people that really organize that idea of time blocking. I really like that, Desmond. And then that's that's where it gets exciting because maybe it's the four day work week. Maybe it's the, you know, we're doing six hour days, whatever it is, when you're you're starting to really optimize the time that you do have together, the time that you do have with your coworkers uh, and you can figure out, hey, if it's done more efficient in this way, let's cut out some time. You know, then folks are even happier to work for you. Absolutely. So, you know, be- before we wrap up, as we think of some of our, our listeners who are really starting out on their career, any advice that you would give them as, as people, you know, think of people who are earlier in the stages of their career, who are trying to think of where do I need to be in five years? What should they be focused on now from your perspective, whether it's certain skills to develop or a certain way to come to work or a certain way to think about the role that work plays in their lives? You, there's several big questions there, so it's, it's tough to hit them all at once. But you, you touched a little bit on identity, so I'll speak on that now, and I guess we'll kind of cycle through. You are not your job. You know, you will be fired, you'll be laid off, you'll be promoted, you'll move to another company, your company will be acquired, whatever it is, you're going to continue to be who you are and you're going to continue to exist separately from the work that you do day in and day out. Um, And I think it can be difficult to recognize and understand that as a young worker. Oftentimes, particularly for men, you know, we're, we kind of tie ourselves to how productive can we be? How much money can we make? How can we provide for ourselves or our family? So I would just start there, but that's a, a major key of understanding and cultivating, actively working to understand for yourself who you are as an individual and, set, and allowing that to be separate from who you are as a worker, because that's only one aspect of, of your being. Ex- extremely important. I mean, you know, if 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 you can think about, um, like you said, things that are tied to being a woman, things that are tied to being a man, you know, where their their roles and those roles are their intersubjective realities. They're they're not baked in from culture to culture, place to place, but we treat them like they're objective, um, and they can create a lot of mental stress and anguish um, across the board in in, in many different ways. 
the things that I would say is learning strategies. I would say um, develop learning strategies and mental frameworks to learn new things and then to stretch that out. So, you know, when I went to school, school had a beginning and an end. It started from kindergarten and, you know, hopefully, you know, you would push all the way to a, a terminal degree, a PhD. I didn't get there, but that was sort of the beginning and the end. And, and then you then you started your life. You went out into the world. So I would say much of the rush is based on hitting that end at the right time. So, you know, you'd hear parents say, you know, he, he skipped ahead a grade. And, you know, the, they'd be really excited about somebody skipping ahead a grade because they'd start early um, with their life. But I, I think if you're going to be a lifelong learner, then like a marathon, you have to pace yourself. If you find things that are super interesting, you can dive into those things that are super interesting. And then the other, from my, my, my cultural bias, you know, I, I was born in Toronto, but spent a, a large portion of my formative years growing up in the Caribbean. Don't look at your personal economy with your national economy. Your, your, your personal economy can be very different than the national economy because you can reach out and, and partner and work at different places with different people around the world. And so that's really, really important. A lot of times, you know, I, I taught in an inner city school, a model school in Toronto, and the kids did not leave their their neighborhood. You know, they, they would walk, you know, maybe five kilometers, um, what is that, two and a half miles in radius uh, around their, their home place. And so most people work this way. Most people socialize this way. Most people's ideas are boxed in this way. Um, but I think if, if you're able to look beyond there, there is an opportunity for then for you to start thinking about, okay, you know what, I, I can I can actually be here if I just get a device that's connected. I can work with people at arm's length. So I think those things, learning strategies, and then you know pushing the envelope in terms of your geography, becoming ge- geographically agnostic without having to physically move. Yeah, yeah. In terms of skill set uh, that I think about. It's fine to pursue the things that you love and the things that are interesting to you. Within that, I would just focus on what are the technical skills, what are the hard skills, and what are the transferable skills related to these things and really hone in on those. Your passion, your love of the craft is going to carry you to develop some of the other skills. But when you really nail down those technical and transferable skills, if your passion happens to change, you can bring that with you to something else and just remaining consistent throughout your career may not feel like it's making a difference, putting an hour a day to learning a new language or to coding or to learning a new skill set. But when you look up and two years have passed and you're, you know, rock solid at it, then, you know, you'll appreciate it. So those are the things that I would really, um, you know, just hone in on as as a young person entering the, the job market. Desmond, this is the last thing that I'm, I'm going to say. You said something really brilliant, which is around passion. A lot of the advice in the, the last you know decade or so is follow your passion. And I just don't believe that's a good idea. I believe what you should do is is, is to be inherently curious, you know, because if, if, if I've had 10 experiences, how would I know what my passion is? I can't really find it. And I'll spend my life feeling really depressed that I haven't found it. But I think if you are pursue curiosity, you will find that you may have lots of different passions. Um, you may have a passion in one decade and it's completely different in another. So I think it really is about seeing yourself almost like, you know, Batman or, or Princess Shuri and just having as many tools as possible in a utility belt that you can use 
in a different situation. I started out as a teacher. I went into technology transfer and technology scouting uh, and then came back into education and in between there had a business with no business degree. And so all of those things was just sort of curiosity. I'm like, oh, let, what's what's this about? Um, I know nothing about that. And, and let me just do a deep dive into it for two or three years and see where it goes. And, and some of those things were successful. And, you know, I, I have at least one or two failures that were pretty spectacular as well. So I, I think, you know, being able to follow along that path of, of curiosity, you know, you, you'll be able to find it. Um, you'll be able to find the things that are that are really interesting. Yeah, and I think it's it's curiosity about the world, but also curiosity about yourself, because to to your point, when you're young and you've only had so many experiences, you don't really know yet what you're good at. You know what you've done well at usually in, in school, but you don't know what you're good at in terms of work, right? You you have ideas about it. And I do think that that's, that notion of curiosity is, is important. But also I think, Desmond, I, lo- I love the way that you, you frame this as you, you're not your job and keeping that sense of self is is really critical because you know otherwise we end up in a in a culture where we glorify overwork and and some of us that might be who we are right we might some of us might be workaholics and that's fine so i i want to thank you guys because this has been for me a very enlightening conversation i think you guys have really deep and well thought out insights into the world that we're facing today, but also our personal responsibility in creating a world that is better for ourselves individually and for the rest of our society. And I think you've touched on a lot of things that if any one of those becomes a reality, I think we're going to be in a, in a really good spot. So thank you guys. Uh, thank you to our listeners and have a great day. This podcast comes from XPRIZE, a global future positive movement of over 1 million people on Rising, delivering radical breakthroughs for the benefit of humanity. Sign up to join us and support the movement that is making a change in the world 10 times faster. Whether it's lending a hand, a dollar, or an idea, we all have a role to play in making the future a better place. The only way to get the future we want is to create it ourselves. Learn more at xprize.org. See you next week. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.